contracts. Intellectual property. Labor law. And much more. Make up to the wonderful world of entertainment law. Let's take a moment and learn about this vast area law. Lights, camera, action. And scene. Hello everyone, happy December, and thank you for tuning in to episode 34 of End Scene, an entertainment law podcast. I'm Tony Costas, And I'm Evan Narr. Wow, Tony, it's been a while. It is December now, the month of cheer. Uh, so how are you feeling? Are you cheery or is the five o'clock sundown getting you in your feels? <laughs> well, it is getting in my feels because I'm not used to leaving the office and it's pitch black. Um, and that's like even at 5.30 or 6 o'clock if I'm, uh, if I'm leaving that early. But um, it's all good here. You know, Thanksgiving has passed. Had a great time with my family and my wife's family. Um, so the semester's over. So now the students are taking my final exam in real time. Um, I'm not looking forward to the part of grading the exams, but hey, you know, it, I get a paycheck at the end of it, so I, I guess it's worth something. <laughs> you had told me, Tony, your lawsuit or your your exam hypothetical, and I will say I'm not going to spoil anything, but yeah. your your students are in for a treat, and there is truly no other professor like you. I will say that. Uh, w- once the exam is complete, maybe we could disclose. We'll have an uncut edition of End Scene <laughs> breaking down the exam. I We were laughing pretty hard once oh you told God. me. It was so funny. And, and the best part was... Evan kind of saw where I was going with the question. Oh, yeah. It's even better. That was so great. I love it. I love it. So that's exciting. Yeah, I uh, I was in California with my fiance's family for Thanksgiving, did some Black Friday shopping, as one does, um, <laughs> and went to Comic-Con in San Francisco as well while I was out there, which was a very laid back environment, my first West Coast convention. And nice. Truly, yeah, there's not a lot. It, it was so laid back. And I think that's a testament to the the clientele, I would say. California is more like not as stressful as New York, which we've been to together. I, I would um, imagine though, San Diego Comic-Con is going to have shades of the New York Comic-Con though, yeah, you know, because it's, it's a really big event for sure. But this San Francisco one, they had a huge talent. Mark Hamill's first convention in years. Wow. He was there and I was lucky enough to get uh, Tamara Morrison, who plays Boba Fett, um, on my Mandalorian poster, as well as Billy Boyd and Dominic Monaghan from Lord of the Rings. And I also got to meet the great Henry Wingler. So there you go. Very successful. uh, And we're back here and enjoying it. So let's just dive into it. Very quick and fun episode for you guys today. Uh, First off, we're going to discuss the storied pair, Hall and Oates. You've definitely heard of them before. I've heard their songs on the radio. They've been around since the 70s. We're going to talk about a restraining order a lawsuit that uh mr hall filed against mr oates and we'll get into that we're also going to talk about the martin luther king estate Uh, i know martin luther king day is in january but we're going to give you a little bit of a preview of a a fun little snippet that steven spielberg actually owns the uh the rights from martin luther king's estates to use his copyrighted speech in films Uh, so we'll go into what that actually means in regard to uh, the estate having ownership over the rights of a certain individual, Tony's bread and butter. (laughs) And then lastly, we will talk about a favorite gift giving story that Tony and I have from our younger years for celebrating Hanukkah and Christmas respectively. So 
uh, let's just dive into it. But before that, our disclaimer. Yes, as always, Evan and I are lawyers, but we're not your lawyers. So anything we see in today's episode is purely our opinion and not representative of our employers in any way, shape, and form. And anything that we see in today's episode is to not be construed as legal advice. Not bad for a three-week break, I got to say. So I'll give myself an A-plus there. <laughs> you don't You don't lose a step. You're not, no, I'm you're not, you're not out of touch, as Daryl Hall and John Oates once oh. said. A great segue. That was not scripted, everyone. That was not scripted. A plus transition. Uh, thank you. Thank you. So uh, you're not out of touch, but you might be a man eater. Uh, so Sarah, smile. Now, I don't know where I'm going with this. Here we are. Let's talk about Daryl Hall and John Oates. So they have been the storied uh, duo Hall and Oates. They've been around since the 70s. They have hit songs like Man Eater, Out of Touch, uh, Sarah Smile, You Make My Dreams. In fact, let, let's play a little bit of You Make My Dreams for the audience right now. What I want. Classic hit, just Cla- like classic hit. I'm pretty sure that was in Step Brothers for a yes, period. Yeah. It was in Step Brothers. I love yeah. that song and that, especially in that context. Also, honorable mention to "I Can't Go for That." Um, no can do in parentheticals. It, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right uh it's a great that's another great song um and has been the source of actual a lot of a lot of sampling from some other artists uh like more of like the contempt in the contemporary space but great band absolutely so what's not good is that daryl hall and john oates unfortunately have kind of had more of a uh, a bitter sort of rivalry in the last year uh they've been together you know just imagine you know they're a partner in in a business venture and and you go on tour together and they've been together since the 70s tensions are bound to you know be tight at some at some eventual point um so this is kind of a long time coming there's there's been a little bit of a deterioration between uh the two of the the collaborators together and very recently uh, Daryl Hall had asked for a restraining order against John Oates uh, because John Oates was looking to, as Daryl Hall puts it, go behind his back and sell some of the music catalog that the two have made together over the past 50 plus years without his permission. Um, and again, uh, Daryl Hall writes that Oates had become quote unquote adversarial and aggressive towards him and has raised a series of business disagreements through a quote unquote revolving cast of lawyers. So clearly there was some trouble in paradise. The, the joint venture was uh, WHO, which stands for, excuse me, WOE, Whole, Whole Oats Enterprises LLP, um, and which the, the, you know, Whole Oats Enterprises oversaw the the trademarks, social media assets, all of this stuff. And we've seen this before, Tony, right? We have had successful musicians sell their catalog to these companies like Primary Wave, uh, which is the the company that uh, Oats was allegedly selling half his catalog to. What what do you make of this, uh, you know, this recent 
development in the music space of selling catalogs to uh, the, these music catalog companies. Yeah, actually, uh, uh, for listeners out there, I think we may have even touched on it with um, Justin Bieber selling yes. his music catalog for, I want to say, around like $250 million. This uh, all came because of the Scooter Braun, you know, bombshell yeah. news that everyone was kind of just trying to get away from him and selling their catalog. Exactly. Taylor, we've talked about ad nauseum. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Um, and and you do see also the inverse where certain uh, celebrities will buy their music catalog back. And I think one great example that's pretty contemporaneous to this is Snoop Dogg, who yep. just who I want to say in twenty twenty two bought Death Row Records uh, back for about two hundred million dollars. I think that excludes Tupac's library, if I'm not mistaken, though. But either way, very common type of business move in the in the music business. That said you're left wondering what is the exact motive in selling at least, you know, his share of, of things. And the only thing I can deduce is from a business perspective, he probably wants no affiliation with, uh, I mean, there, there's a very clear line drawn in the sand here that probably, you know, John Hall wants no affiliation with Daryl Oates or sorry, sorry, the other way around. Daryl Hall, Hall, <laughs> Hall wants no affiliation with, uh, John Oates here. And I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, I, I mean, it's a clean it, break. Really. Yeah, it's it's like you know he's like basically divesting his interest in his share of the songs. He gets a payday, and then maybe this allows him to go solo and he could do his own music and and call it a day. But you can see from Daryl Hall's perspective why this might be problematic. And I'm not saying Primary Wave are bad people, but now you have a secondary party that really has a fifty percent interest in all of the uh, the what goes on with the with the music. And one thing to bear in mind actually since you brought that up, fantastic point. Um you know, Daryl Hall may set a license fee, but what if let's say uh the primary wave portion that was formerly John Oates, like what if they set a price that is lesser than normal and it it creates like this wonky most favor nations type of pattern when it comes to music licensing on that front now that it to evan's point that does become extremely problematic or the 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 way primary wave will review license requests for any songs going forward in uh, a synch synchronization format or in some other you know let, let's say a mechanical license agreement they're they they're very likely to scrutinize a little bit more some of those requests than normal um and they're probably going to not look at it with the same level of personal attention that maybe john oates would have if he still had his share of, of things but this is entirely a business move i can't see anything beyond that and it, it does make me wonder like what led to this this point they it seems like they had only had a business relationship maybe some type of friendship i'm sure during the 70s and 80s but it sounds like for the most for most of the time that they were together it was purely business something that we just don't know that's out there in publications had to lead to this point and i would imagine it was some type of just internal conflict about the business side of things with the music that's probably what led to this point yeah, and I also want to debunk the theory. Oh, I have 25% battery, so hopefully we can finish the end of the podcast. <laughs> um, I do want to debunk the theory, too, about restraining orders, right? We often hear this in terms of keeping someone away from someone else. Initially, when I read this, this, this article, this, this headline, you know, Daryl Hall obtains restraining order against John Oates, John Oates. I'm like, oh, my God, it's like, is this guy, like, is this getting predatorial is he going to his house and like you know toilet papering it but actually a restraining order could also be a tro we call it could also be a way of preventing someone from doing something 
in this case, we are the, the, the judge that ordered this TRO uh, is preventing John Oates from selling his share of the business to Primary Wave and whoever the other suitors were uh, until Oates and Hall and Oates um, come to a decision, a private arbitration that they're currently doing at the same time. So just wanted to debunk the theory that, you know, the headline definitely was catchy. It did catch me, a, an attorney, uh, off guard a little bit, but it is nearly just to stop someone from doing something. The restraining order has many different uses. Do you have anything to opine on that, Tony? Or No, I, I completely that? agree. And I think that that just shows the versatility of the law. It's not a whole, sometimes it's un, it's unilateral or one-dimensional, but you see it very much in this context, even in the uh, entertainment space. Absolutely. All right, so we'll see what happens there. Let's move on to Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And Tony and I have spoken about, um, you know, personality rights and Tony's past uh, experience working at Greenlight, where he was ahead of the Albert Einstein estate there. Uh, what's very interesting, though, and I, I just saw this article that I spoke to Tony about, is Steven Spielberg. Yes, that Steven Spielberg, the illustrious director, producer, writer, you name it. Uh, he actually negotiated with Dr. King's estates to obtain a license. Licensing is, you know, the best thing out there uh, to use Martin Luther King's copyrighted speeches in a film. Uh, and news broke that Spielberg had also obtained the film rights of Dr. King's life, uh, known as life rights, really. So Tony can go into this a little bit more. I, we don't, we don't want to beat a dead horse, but we, you know, I, I told Tony this and he was very interested in, in the fact that Steven Spielberg had owned these rights. Well, what are, what are some of your stories that you can divulge? about the the Martin Luther King estate and what this all means. So let's start with the first thing, which is a lot of people are wondering, how can a speech be protected at all to begin with? Well, we've talked about it ad nauseum. I'm sure you you guys remember from previous episodes, but you know, copyright uh, extends to not just your traditional forms of works of authorship like yep. film or television shows or artwork, but it would include literary components like a speech. Mm -hmm. And this is actually a very interesting story. Nice little evergreen story. We haven't done one in a while, but this is actually something that dates even as far back as uh, I want to say the 1980s, 11th Circuit decision, a state of Martin Luther King Jr. versus CBS. CBS did a whole special on Martin Luther King Jr. where they showed a substantial portion of the uh, I Have a Dream speech that uh, uh, Dr. King gave on the steps of the Lincoln uh, Monument, um, Lincoln Memorial rather, um, right outside of um, in Washington in 1963. And, you know, the, the, the main point of contention at that time was that the estate argued that the way um, CBS was using it was it's something that went outside the grain of fair use and would trigger a license. But of course, the argument that CBS made is, well, this was a public domain speech. This was something that he gave out in the public. So essentially what this decision held was that, yes, he gave an oration to the general public, but Martin Luther King Jr. wrote the speech. He actually hand wrote it. And those handwritings of that speech uh, were registered in the U.S. Copyright Office and are still active copyrights. Although I would imagine, if we're they're going expiring off, soon, very very soon. Uh, so for perspective, those would likely be governed under the Copyright Act of 1909. And at that time, 
copyright lasted for a, for a term of 28 years and is subject to renewal for an additional 28 years, so collectively 56 years. I'm not entirely sure if works around that time would be grandfathered into the Copyright Act in 1976 to get a little bit of extra life, kind of like what happened with the Steamboat Willie copyright. I would imagine that if it's registered under the Martin Luther King Enterprises, the estate's corporate entity, maybe it got a little extra second life. But either way, it, it will eventually expire the copyright. But all that to say, the the court basically held in the 11th Circuit that these speeches are copyrighted. And if you want to use it in some type of manner, it would trigger a license because Martin Luther King Jr. publicly performed his copyright. That's his right to do that. If you want to show that public performance, that triggers a license. And this is separate in part from ABC, CBS, or NBC contemporaneously at that time in 1963, covering it in news. This is talking about afterward, uh, using it afterward. So that kind of sets the landscape then to how this all happened. Because the estate owns the copyright to the speeches, if you want to use it in a news report, if you want to use it in an ad campaign, if you want to use it even in a film, that's going to trigger some type of license with the estate. And that is easily how it happened with Martin Luther, with um, uh, Steven Spielberg. The fact that he wants to you know, use him in some type of – or feature him in some type of film or other type of audiovisual work, uh, th to get that license from the estate was pivotal and – you commonly see this in the postborn and personality right world, where the the licensing of life rights um, typically takes uh, takes place. It's a nice source of income for the estates, and I know this firsthand with the Einstein estate, where um, we had originally licensed with the production company. I'm blanking on them, the production company that made A Beautiful Mind, but we had originally licensed the film rights to them back in 2002, and basically that contract kept getting sold, sold, sold before it ended up in the hands of. Uh, 21st Century Fox, which ended up turning what was in the contract supposed to be a film about Einstein into basically season one of Genius, which was about the life of Albert Einstein. It was the Nat, Ge Nat Geo series that I think now is entering its fourth season. Um, it's covered so far Einstein, Picasso, Aretha Franklin, and I think now Malcolm X. Um, so very, very interesting, you know, kind of trajectory how that all goes down. But very much in this whole space of uh, postmortem personality right licensing, and obviously this little unique nuance with uh, the copyright of the speeches. Yeah, and a few things that I want to mention. The reason why this is coming to light is because it has been, I'm pretty sure, confirmed that uh, Chris Rock, um, who we all know, will be uh, producing and directing a biopic on uh, Martin Luther King, and you know we we've seen Martin uh, the the, um, the movie Selma. Rings true. Uh, that was directed by uh, and written by Ava DuVernay, uh, who is a very talented director. And uh, Martin Luther King was played um, by David Oyelowo. Uh, and also, I believe um, John Legend and Common won a Grammy for Best Original Song called Glory uh, in, in Selma. However, you will notice that in Selma, there was no actual speeches that Martin Luther King gave that were in there because, again, it could be very costly to license these from the King estate. Um, so I see here in this article as well that uh, Ava DuVernay wrote kind of um, soliloquies for 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 Mr. Uh, Oilowo to perform that sounded like they could have been King's actual famous speeches, but they were actually paraphrased since DuVernay did not have the rights to use King's actual, actual words. Um, which had already been licensed to Steven Spielberg, by the way. 
so Stephen is attached to work with Chris Rock in uh, this new biopic. Uh, and I, apparently rumor is that he's actually reached out to David Oyelowo as well wow. to portray uh, Martin Luther again. Wow, uh, were you, you going to say something? I was. I was going to say. Um, I would. I would be curious to know if uh, Ava DuVernay ended up even reaching out to the Martin Luther King Jr. State just to get the feelers out. And you know, it's very possible. I'm sure they had to. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Now, nothing's stopping them from doing. Uh, you know, a, a whole uh, movie about it because it's about a historical event. But right. um, you know, when you're integrating. IP like the copyright of the speeches, that's when it becomes a totally different ballgame. Speaking of uh, historical event, did you ever see the movie Our Friend Martin? Oh, I've heard of it. Uh, who's in it? I'm. Uh, oh, I've definitely heard of it. So this was the movie that we watched in elementary or middle school when we had a substitute teacher. I'm almost positive elementary school. They rolled in the TV like this. Automatically new. You automatically know. Archaic TV on that, that was held together by like rope. You know what I'm the, talking The Velcro. It was a Velcro strap on the, the top. The Velcro <laughs> strap on the top. And they played Our Friend Martin. It came out in 1999. And what a voice cast they had. Angela Bassett, wow. Samuel L. Jackson, oh. Whoopi Goldberg, LeVar Burton, and an Ed Asner. Oh, they, my God. Yeah, they kind of go back in time. Uh, to kind of see what happened during a Martin Luther King's lifetime, and they actually befriend a young Martin Luther King. Uh, to, it's, it says the description, two teens are sent back in time to meet Martin Luther King Jr. at several points of his life. Phenomenal, phenomenal film. Uh, I, I, do, I have not done my due diligence. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I'm curious uh, if his speeches were actually in uh, the, the movie. I don't know. It was a children's educational film, but... Either so, way. so it's interesting. I'm reading the Wikipedia page, and sure. it looks like with the production companies involved in it, one of them is called Intellectual Properties Worldwide. Mm. And ironically enough, the licensing agent for the Martin Luther King Jr. State is called Intellectual Property Management. So, mm. I wonder if they rebranded or if they have some type of affiliation with this as well. But very, very interesting. And I see here that it was even nominated for an Emmy in 1999 for outstanding animated program for programming more than an hour. So, and excuse me as well, Richard Kind, Ashley Judd, James Earl Jones, Oprah Winfrey, wow. or John Travolta, Susan Sarandon were also in this movie. I'm telling you, My it God. is remarkable. <laughs> I'm going to have to watch this now. <laughs> it's, it's so good. That and Prince of Egypt are two of my oh, favorites. Prince of Egypt is just a classic right there. Uh, Val Kilmer, if Ray Fiennes. If, if we have to fly out to the UK just to see the Prince of Egypt musical, we will. We will find a way. <laughs> Hell yeah. Uh, it, it, incredible. Uh, I, I believe. What's your next business trip to the UK? Yeah, right. <laughs> Tag along. I believe Steven Sorry, Schwartz um, uh, came up with the, the music for Prince of Egypt. I'm typing that in right now. Steven Schwartz, the brilliant mind behind um, Wicked. Oh, he yeah. did. Wow. Yeah. There you yeah. go. There you go. So, That's talented. Uh, very talented mind. I'm actually seeing him in concert on Monday the 11th. Uh, there's going to be several stars that are there performing. Josh Groban, uh, Nick Jonas, Leslie Odom, uh, to honor him, uh, a storied lyricist uh, like Stephen Schwartz. Amazing. Anyway, that kind of took a, a turn from Martin Luther King, but uh, very interesting, and we'll see what happens there. <laughs> yeah. Now, back to our final story, and I am very limited on batteries, so let's see if we could do the, a speed round here. A favorite gift-giving story. I'll go first. When I was younger, 
have you ever heard of like the scholastic warehouse tony absolutely <laughs> okay so the scholastic warehouse for those uh you know intellectually inclined like myself when i was younger was this huge warehouse of all of these books where you can get them like wholesale like costco really before you go to a barnes and noble a borders at the mm -hmm. time um and you can get them wholesale i'll never forget my mom and i brought or excuse my mom brought my brother and i to a scholastic warehouse and i was able to pick books and you know i, I was a little greedy when i was younger and I picked them out and then my mom gifted those to us for Hanukkah. So for eight, for those eight nights, I, I like, I, I got books, which I already picked. And I thought, you know, my mom was just doing it to, to educate us and to get us books and whatnot. But th no, those were the Hanukkah gifts oh my that, God. I, that I picked out for myself and it were, it was those books. So I always make a joke that if you're kind of wondering why I am the way that I am, it's because for Hanukkah, I got scholastic books from the warehouse <laughs> and you gifted yourself those gift books I gifted them so. myself. <laughs> that's amazing so my christmas story uh i'll never forget it was i want to say 1996 or 95 when the gamecube came out mm -hmm. i was desperate to get my hands on it so it was always my wish list my parents always always you know were complying with my christmas wish list and particularly i really wanted the gamecube so my mom gives me this massive box and inside the box is another wrap box. So then I wrap that and it's another wrap box. Oh and my I God. Wrap that. Liz, what are you doing? <laughs> Altogether, probably 10 boxes before it ended up being the, uh, the, the final box for the GameCube. This is actually similar to another thing that she did where I will also never forget. We went to a Rugrats show when I was a kid. Rugrats, the musical, it was like a live show at Radio City Music Hall. Same story. Gave me all these boxes, unwrap, unwrap, unwrap. 10 boxes later, you know, killing all the trees, but there were the tickets to, to the, uh, to the, uh, Rugrats show. So fun memories. And obviously, uh, hopefully I don't have to torment my future children through something like that. <laughs> I love that. Um, all right. That brings us to the end of episode 35. Hope you guys enjoyed quick and fun little episode. Good to be back. Uh, obviously the holidays are coming up. So our, Recording might be a little few and far between, but we're definitely planning on having at least one more uh, before the holiday break. So uh, for those of you that have been loyal listeners, thank you so much for sticking with us this year. I cannot believe we've been 35 episodes. This was our brainchild in February of 2023. Uh, it's been almost a year of yeah. fun. That anniversary episode is going to be very special. I can't fun, wait for that. Fun, collaborative, uh, good times shared with Tony and with you guys as well. Thank you always for reaching out and, you know, sharing your positive thoughts about the podcast. It truly does mean a lot to us. So Tony, take us on home. Yeah. I uh, want to echo those same sentiments. Thank you so much for you guys listening, especially since we're in Spotify rap season. Some of you have sent us <laughs> your, your podcasts and we're happy to see and seen on there. So thank you so much in advance. Um, but as a reminder, we're not filming in studio. We're on Riverside today, but always a shout out to PNT Network podcast and bookstore where the magic of end scene kind of started located at 180 Orchard street in lower East side. You could check us out on Shake, S-H-A-Y-K, use referral code NSCENE to join the extra conversation on all things entertainment law. And most importantly, we want to thank all of you. Oh, and we also want to thank Hunter Zarin for the theme song, as always. And then, and then after that, we want to thank all of you for listening to this week's episode of NSCENE, an entertainment law podcast. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out to us on all social media platforms at NSCENE Pod. And until next time, NSCENE. NSCENE.